Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio, and joining me as a host today is Martha from Boston Red Cloaks. And also joining as a co-host is Laura Benesi with the Boston Red Cloaks. And our wonderful special guest is Bridget Merriman, who is right here joining us. Hello, Bridget. Hi, hi guys. Bridget, we're really excited. So Bridget is a current medical school student, and we're really interested in thinking about the Roe Act and current legislation from the perspective of someone who's entering the field of medicine. So welcome. We're really excited to chat with you today. Thank you. I'm so excited to speak with you guys too. Big picture, when we think about the root of the Roe Act is thinking about access to reproductive health care. And that framing of abortion services as health care is something that may be generationally moving forward and evolving. So can we just start with like how you as a medical student ended up talking and thinking about the Roe Act? Right, absolutely. Um, so basically healthcare in general, our goal, and I'm speaking, when I say our, I mean like me as a future, future medical professional, right? Um, our goal is always to increase care and decrease barriers to care, increase access, increase how people receive it and the care that they do receive and reduce any hindrances to that care. And so abortion is healthcare. And so our goal as physicians is to increase access to that care should someone decide to pursue it and not increase barriers. And so point blank, that's our goal here is we want people who need this care, who desire this to be able to access it without um, the barriers that we see in legislation, politics, policy, et cetera. So Bridget, how, how did you end up in medical school? What made you want to go? Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. So um, for me, I was lucky and that lucky, unlucky. I had a healthcare experience when I was younger that really drew me to the healthcare field. So I've kind of always been attracted to medicine in the department of wanting to help people. And then I always like science. So for me, wanting to help people in science, that really drove me to medicine. And in that, something that's the medical field is really shifting towards recently, which is incredible, is this theme of advocacy. And right, so everyone can advocate for what they're passionate for. And so in medicine and in medical school, there's so many student groups that are activist groups for different interests. And so that's how I came to the medical student for choice group. Um, I, at this moment, am not really interested in being like, an OBGYN or this healthcare as my career. But for me personally, I feel like this is an issue that I'm drawn towards. Um, so drawn to medicine to help people. And it really coincides with how the field as a whole is shifting towards continuing to advocate for our patients in legislation and healthcare policy, really any way that accompanies that clinical practice. I wanna ask you, you were saying that there are a lot of advocacy groups on the medical profession. When, if you chose one of those advocacy groups, would that send you towards the administration part of the medicine or can you stay an advocate and keep on practicing medicine? So that's a really good point to make. I think if your interest is to like go up in healthcare administration and kind of influence policy and how hospitals and the medical field operates, you can. Um, we also have a lot of physicians that go to their research is oriented and saying, listen, here's the data, here's our role, our duty to increase access to care in some way. So like global health, for example, 
um, a lot of physicians in the United States then have partners in any part of the world where their goal is to work together to bring care to different populations, however that is needed, right? So at the moment, so many people in America are talking about healthcare and whether or not people have a right to basic healthcare. And I'm wondering, as you talk about the medical school area, is that is there a is there a place or a value that is shared by everyone in medical school right now, a starting place, or do people have different points of view in your classes and studies? I think that everyone we come with this basic understanding, kind of ground zero of that we are interested in medicine because we want to help people. Medicine, as a definition, is intervening with something that's happening to the body, and so everyone wants to help their patients. And so we need our patients to be able to come to us. So access to care in general is always ground zero. How can we make sure that someone gets to us? Because if they can't get to us, whether it be um, like a policy barrier, so say in our case, abortion, if it's not offered legally as care, that's preventing a patient from coming or a structural barrier. So um, public transportation, um, insurance that they can't afford this care, those are all barriers preventing. And so people find their niches in those different sectors of what are the big barriers. And that's what everyone is coming from the main idea of we wanna get rid of this barrier so that everyone has this care. So I think even though different medical professionals have their different peak interests, it's all stemming from the same goal to increase access to care. So it, it makes me think about um, the the different kinds of care that have been controversial and um, that people have brought up, you know, whether they refused care based on religious beliefs or, um, you know, whatever. Um, but but do you feel that 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 you're advocating is um, is really working on that as a whole? Let me just rephrase your question to make sure I'm interpreting it right. So is there almost like a duty, even if as a provider, I might not agree with the decision my patient is making for care? Do I still go forward with that? Is that what you're? Yeah. Yeah. I think in general, and I think of abortion care as, um, as related to that, right? Because it Mm -hmm. is, you know, something that's in the news that, that providers could they shouldn't but they could refuse based on personal beliefs and and that goes against what you're so definitely so as a provider you there are kind of a safety net that you can always fall back on is that if you aren't comfortable or don't agree with a certain treatment plan that your patient is really wanting for themselves you can warmly hand them off to another provider who may be able to provide that care. So in our case of abortion, if I don't want to be an abortion care provider, I don't have to be. Um, If my patient comes to me and is saying, hey, this is the care that I want for myself, I can hand them off to someone else. Um, But actually, right now, um, there is what's called the gag rule that the Trump-Pence administration um, has made, and that's actually impeding providers from making that referral. So if I have a patient that comes to me asking for that care, I couldn't refer them to an abortion care provider. But ideally, in an ideal world, yes, if you are not comfortable with a certain course of treatment, you can hand them off to another provider so that your feelings aren't going to impact the type of care and the quality of care that you're giving. That's so interesting to me that 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 is then not available for 
providers to pass off their care. I also didn't know that you could, you could actually do that in good conscience and just, um, you know, refer your patient to somebody else. But I guess it makes sense if you aren't, you know, confident in what you could do. It just, when you think of the personal views, that's um, a different issue. Can I follow up? And that is, um, you know, I've heard it through the years, different um, theories about uh, training. And, um, and I just wondered, like, what your view is on the current training of medical students. Do you feel like people are being trained adequately to provide this care? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point to bring up. So ideally, we would like to think in medical school education, we're being exposed to all types of care, right? Even if we in our back of our minds say don't want to do that. So for me, I know that I definitely don't want to do surgery, but I'm still learning anatomy. I'm still looking at cadavers. Um, but on the flip side, this reproductive health care isn't really leaned into as much at some schools. So for example, there's one school, I won't name it, but um, the head of their OBGYN department is very much not in support of abortion care. And so if someone is coming through that program and is an advocate and is passionate about that, they need a letter of recommendation from this faculty member in applying to residencies, but they can't explore that as a healthcare field. They can't let it be known that that's something they're interested in because that faculty, that faculty member will then not write their letter. So yes, ideally everyone should be able to be exposed to everything, but still those personal beliefs and choices that everyone is entitled to have sometimes gets in the way of providing an objective education. Thank you. Oh, uh, so you so you were saying um, there are some procedures that you don't you could you wouldn't do because of your beliefs. But if you're not forced to teach or to learn those procedures. You're saying that? So that's or actually... is it like optional? It's like um, I'm from a different country, so in, and I have a, um, all my family was back home were were and are doctors, and they were always saying that they had to learn a lot of things, and sometimes they weren't comfortable with what they were learning, but they had to know how to do things because. Back, the, back home, things are the way they are. I mean, they tell you, you have to do this and shut up and do it. It's not, there's no, it's not like you can choose if, especially if you are inside the country uh, taking care of patients, sometimes you are the only doctor. And if you are the only doctor, you cannot tell somebody, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that goes against my beliefs. I mean, the next doctor is two or three hours away and maybe you would die if you don't do the procedure. But being brought up in a different country, I have all these, uh, all these ideas. So um, please tell me. No, that's a really good point. And actually in my student groups, we talk about that very idea if, and so let me backtrack for a minute. Our first week of school, so I'm a first year medical student and we had all of us um, 
took, there's about 150 of us took a survey about just our opinions and attitudes on different things in the medical field. And one of them was if there's, or one thing we've been talking about is if they're teaching something that maybe we don't agree with for other reasons, should we be allowed to step out and say, I don't want to learn this or should an institution be able to say like, we're not going to teach this. You have to go out of your way to get that education, right? Um, should that be allowed to happen? And for the same reasons as me, who's someone who doesn't see herself doing surgery in the future, but I still have to learn anatomy and I still have to learn um, things that I maybe don't see myself doing for exactly like you said, for the same reason, someone who doesn't see themselves doing reproductive health care should still know how to do it and how to do it correctly. Because like you said, um, that person may be the only one with experience and knowledge to do that, whether or not they would have that procedure done on themselves, they should still be able to do it for their patient, right? We need to be able to separate our own beliefs and our own choices from providing good care to someone who needs it. That's a perfect point, the one you said now, that people should be, it's like a lawyer. A lawyer mm -hmm. can have to, has to separate himself from what he is defending even if he's uh, repulsed by the person. So the doctor, even though if he is repulsed by the action, he has to do it if he is the only one available. Right. And let me bring up a similar situation, but different. That happens all the time, right? So we, if someone is undergoing cancer treatment, right, there's oftentimes clinical trials to do, or if someone is facing a very aggressive and potentially terminal diagnosis, when they choose to stop treatment, that's the decision that is made between themselves, their family, and the provider, right? And we respect as a provider, the decision our patient's making, whether or not as a provider, so that's why I wanna be an oncologist, that's why I'm defaulting to this example. Um, even if say I would wanna pursue more treatment or wanna look for different options, I would have to respect my patient's decision that, you know what, they've had a great life and they maybe don't want to do this anymore. That's the same respect and dignity we have to give to any person seeking any type of care. Whether or not we would do it for ourselves, we have to trust that they're doing what's right for them. I also wonder if we can speak, and I will warn people who are listening that I'm going to be more explicit and graphic about abortion. One of the things that's happening in the ROW Act is looking at the week 24 mark. It's yes. an arbitrary mark that's in our state laws that says if a pregnant person discovers she has a fatal fetal diagnosis and there will be no healthy baby at the end of the pregnancy and she or he or he or they would prefer to end the pregnancy. Um, in the state of Massachusetts now, if it's at or after week 24, they may not do that which means they must remain pregnant. So I'd like to understand for, from a doctor's perspective what that looks like. Because right. the patient remains pregnant and there's no thriving baby at the end of this. Right. And statistically speaking, really quick, just about that quote unquote late term abortion, that's a really big factor, right? Like we hear some inflammatory language about people um, terminating a pregnancy right before the fetus is delivered. And that's just not what happened. That is not what's happening, right? So this um, after 24 week, in 26, after 24 mark, 
of all the abortions performed, right, over 600,000 each year, 44 and a half million since 1970, less than 1% are after that 22 week mark. So far and wide, this is a very, very minuscule. And that is in those cases of um, a condition incompatible with life, right? At this point, at 22 weeks, most people would know that they're pregnant and they're choosing to continue the pregnancy. And so people at this stage want to carry that pregnancy to term. And so when they've mentally prepared for it, they're getting ready for it. And then to hear that that fetus will not survive is really hard. Um, mentally speaking, I haven't looked at the literature, so I don't want to say things that aren't true, but you can assume that that's really hard mentally and can have a lot of um, impacts, even with pregnancies that are carried to term and the babies do survive. Postpartum depression is a huge issue, and so you can only imagine of how much more exacerbated that feeling is when that baby doesn't survive, and so expanding this in the ROAT to allow for an abortion to take place after 24 weeks if the fetus is incompatible with life is really important. Yes, and I think when people really take a minute and think about what would it be like to be an adult person who was pregnant and is now going to go forward remaining pregnant knowing that the fetus cannot live. And so you're carrying some, some piece of you is constantly surrounded by oncoming death, because that right. is what's going to happen next. There won't be life, it will be death. So I'm, I'm taking the time to speak about it with you because you have a professional look at it. And it's very hard for people to talk about, mm -hmm. but we've bumped into people who feel like they believe without any science background or training, they believe the human body takes care of things and that any pregnancy results in a healthy, thriving baby. And they right. don't seem to accept that some pregnancies lead to death. Mm -hmm. It's definitely, it's so hard. The human body is so amazing in so many ways, but we see all the time that sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't function correctly, right? That is cancer is when the body mm -hmm. isn't doing what it's supposed to be. That's all so many health conditions is when your body isn't functioning right. And through no fault of the pregnant person, sometimes that fetus just is not viable for life. And most miscarriages that occur right before the person even knows they're pregnant are because of that, are because of just random things that happen in fertilization. And when the sperm um, DNA and the egg DNA combine, it's just incompatible with life. And sometimes these things take longer to develop that then leads the fetus to be incompatible. And just think when you see someone who is very clearly pregnant, right? Probably well into their third trimester. Imagine if you're that person who was told after 24 weeks that your fetus won't survive. You have all these people. That's kind of when it's socially acceptable to say congratulations because you're assuming that someone right. at that stage of pregnancy is accept or is expecting that baby and is excited for it in some way. Imagine that toll day in and day out of people saying congratulations, strangers, people coming up and asking to feel your stomach, right? In the back of your mind, if you know that that fetus is incompatible with life, how day after day that's just chipping away and so, so hard to deal with. Um, so coming from the ground understanding of wanting to do what's best for the patient, that is not what's best for the patient, making them carry that 
fetus to term and giving birth to a baby that will soon die or stillborn, right? So in the sense of doing what's best for your patient, doing no harm, it really is in the best interest of the patient to terminate that pregnancy um, when they find out it's if they choose to terminate it, if it's incompatible with life. We've talked to people in other states where the laws are much more restrictive than even the 24 weeks. And mm -hmm. what that means is there are people right now who are delivering stillborn because they weren't able to access healthcare. Mm -hmm. and, and that, that just shouldn't be happening. That is a very heavy weight for someone to bear. Right. And some of these people are parents already with children. So then their family also has to go through that together. Right. A majority, seven out of 10 people seeking abortion care already have children. So right, you're bringing in this whole nother dynamic of how to explain to the children already in that family of what's going on if they're old enough to understand. So yeah, it's just, it's putting a lot of pressure and stress and anxiety and these feelings on people that we don't need to be. And so I just don't think that's fair to be forcing that. Someone should be able to make their own decision of how they go forward once they hear that news. And yet the messaging out there is that, you know, these people that don't make any decisions before then, and they're, they're up in the air about their pregnancy and they decide this at 28 weeks, you know, it's just incredible. But it, it, right. it's also incredible that that messaging is successful, that that's what right. some people think of when they think of somebody who's getting an abortion later on in their pregnancy. Right. And that's just not happening just across no. the board. And there's always anomalies, right? But far and wide, when less than 1% of abortions that are happening are at this mark, that's when you know, like, it is not a decision someone just wakes up with one day and says, you know, what? I'm going to end the pregnancy. That's just not happening. Right, right. And then the rhetoric really, I think, has driven this country apart because you mm -hmm. have people who have made this decision uh, or people who wanted to make a decision but can't access healthcare. None of those people wanna run out and broadcast their life experience because that lived experience is very painful. So right. we don't have a lot of people who are ready to come out and advocate for what this is like and talk about it because it's just so sad. It's deeply sad. And mm -hmm. it, it means it's very helpful to have someone like you who's willing to talk about it and is able to get through the conversation without a broken heart because people have to be able to understand and contemplate what this is like. And instead you have people on the other side who are you know, calling people baby killers and insisting everyone who makes a decision at this point, at this stage in the pregnancy is, has made this for selfish reasons or it hasn't mm -hmm. been thoughtful and it's just not true. Right, and even Every, I think also um, people feel the need to defend or explain like why they're making a certain decision. Um, and we don't ask that of people making other healthcare decisions, right? Like we trust them to know what they're doing. And so to be expecting people to defend this or to have them, if it is a, an abortion later in pregnancy to explain this is what's happening, that's just really none of our business, right? We we are too nosy sometimes into what other people are doing and we need to be more supportive, especially now, right? Especially with COVID in the picture, there's people who have lost their jobs, who are financially don't know where their um, 
next rent payment is going to be coming from. And so all of a sudden we have so many people faced with a decision that in normal times, because we're facing unprecedented times right now, this is a decision they wouldn't and a choice they wouldn't have to be thinking about, but now it is. And so it just goes to show, like you said, there are so many lived experiences that we just don't know. And it's not fair of us to be placing that judgment on people. Bridget, we so appreciate your coming and speaking with us today. And we would love to invite you back. There's some other aspects of, of the ROW Act and of reproductive health care that we would love to also discuss with you, if you would consider that. Yes, absolutely. I would love to continue our conversation. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you and see you soon. <laughs>